Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. I'd like to spend our time this morning on this psalm. One of the richest treasures that we as Christian ha- Christians have is the book of Psalms. And it is very different from all the rest of the Bible. And the reason is that it's a prayer book. And in it we get the opportunity to hear and to read the prayers of some of the strategic believers in ancient Israel. The astounding thing to me is that these were prayed before Jesus was ever born. And the guys who prayed these, uh, and maybe some ladies, I don't know, they uh, never had read a gospel, and they never read a New Testament. And yet you will find within these many of the motifs that you find developed in the New Testament. The unity of the Word of God, the unity of the Revelation, to me, is one of the most awesome things about the Scripture. That what you find here is completely compatible with the fuller revelation that is to come. It's as compatible as the seed is with the acorn. Now, you may have to have eyes to see the compatibility, but it's there. Occasionally, I feel that uh, it's almost unfair to these people that we have their prayers. Because uh, there's something almost obscene about sneaking up and listening to somebody's prayers. Uh, I'd hate for you. I, I wouldn't want you to listen to some of my prayers. But uh, God in his goodness has not only uh, left these, but left them in writing where we can read them and see what these people pray. Uh, I was in a conference once and there was one of the other persons there was a New Testament professor from a Baptist seminary out in the West. And he came up to me and he said, you're from Asbury, aren't you? And I said, yes. Well, he said, I suspect I know a lot of things about Asbury you don't know. And uh, I said, oh, I'm the president. What do you know I don't know? Well, he said, uh, I know a lot of things about the past of Asbury. I said, how'd you learn these? He said, well, I lived in the home of Henry Clay Morrison when he was the president of Asbury, of Asbury College and of Asbury Seminary. Morrison was an evangelist who traveled across the country. His home was in Louisville. And his wife, Aunt Betty, was the... Uh, She was the associate editor for the Herald, and she was uh, the key figure in his administration of the college and the seminary. She stayed home and ran the business, and he traveled the country and the world preaching the gospel. And so uh, he said, the room that I had was right next to their bedroom, and the wall wasn't real thick. And said when he would come home from one of his trips, they would... uh, get together, and the first thing he would say was, now tell me everything about Asbury, and Aunt Betty would tell him everything, all the problems, and then he'd say, well, let's pray, and he said he always prayed loud, and so he said, I knew a lot of things about Asbury that nobody else knew. Now, you know, it is an awesome thing to listen to somebody's prayer. You see a person's soul, you see a person's psyche, you see who a person is. 
Now, uh, that's the part of the value, though, of these priceless gems. And uh, the beautiful thing is that we really shouldn't be so ashamed to expose ourselves to each other because the amazing thing is that if you expose yourself to me, what I see is not you, but I see me. If I've got clear vision. Because the reality is, there's no difference apart from grace in any of us. We are all exactly alike. Now, yours may be less exaggerated. Your sinfulness may be less exaggerated than mine. But the principle is still there. We are all exactly alike apart from grace. And the, the beautiful thing is that if we open ourselves to each other, we understand ourselves better because what we see in the other person, if we'll, if we'll let God speak to us, we'll find it somewhere in us too, apart from grace. Now, uh, in this psalm, you get a man who has problems. Notice how he begins. Uh, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. And what he's really saying is, please, Lord, listen. I want your attention at the moment, and I need it, because I am poor and needy. He said, I'd appreciate it if you'd preserve me. Now, what he's meaning is, I'm in trouble. And there's danger to me, there's danger to my very existence. And I don't know where else to turn. And if you don't preserve me, I won't be preserved. So he says, keep my life, preserve my life. Now he said, I have a claim on you because I'm devoted to you. I want you to save your servant who trusts in you. Now you get two things in that line. You get the extent of his need. He wants to be saved. And if you need to be saved, you're in deep trouble. That's not just a... Uh, a little blessing he's after. He's after being saved, protected, his life. And he says, uh, that's what I want, and I have a claim on you because I'm trusting in you. And you know, it's interesting. When somebody trusts you, the other person does have a claim on you, doesn't he? When somebody dares to trust you, he's got a, he's got a, he's got leverage on you. You've got an obligation if somebody has put his confidence in you. Now he says, you're my God, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all day long. Now if you look at the title, it says it's a prayer of David. Now some of the scholars say probably not, but suppose for a moment it is David. Here is a king. It's interesting when you find a grown man who's a king ruling over a kingdom and he cries all day. But now that's what he says he's doing, for he says, I cry all day long. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. Now it's interesting that he sticks in the midst of this plea for safety, a word about forgiveness, isn't it? And, uh, uh, I kick that around a little bit because that's actually, if you will look down, look at verse 14. Verse 14 he says, O God, the arrogant or the insolent, depending on which translation you've got, rise up against me. A band of ruffians are seeking my life, and they don't set you before them. They're not restrained by religion at all. Their religion doesn't hinder them from destructive purposes, so they're out to destroy me. So obviously he is in a place where he is. his own life is endangered, and then he sticks in this thing, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. 
I expect that to be human is to have a rather intimate association with, with guilt. And that when you and I are in deep need and come to pray, that somewhere lurking, lurking around inside most of us is healing. Why should he listen to me? Because we have enough guilt that's down in us somewhere stuck away. And so uh, he says, I need physical protection. I need political uh, salvation, deliverance. But he said, uh, I'm glad you're a forgiving God because you, where I've failed you, you can cover that and you can forgive it uh, because you're the one who abounds in steadfast love to all who call on you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my cry of supplication. In the day of my trouble, he's in trouble. In the day of my trouble, I call on you. And the reason I call on you is because I know you will answer me. At least that's my confidence. I believe you will answer me. Now that sort of gives you the context in which this psalm occurs. The one who writes it, is uh, prays it, is in deep trouble, and he needs deliverance, and he needs protection, and he's calling on God for it. Now, let me uh, uh, suppose for a minute that it is from David, that David did write it. If he didn't, it could have been one of the other kings of Israel, but suppose David did write it. Then what he's got is a problem with arrogant ruffians who rise up against him and seek his life. The thought went through my mind is, do you suppose he's got the potential palace coup on his hands? Uh, John Shell told me that Gorbachev has just been booted, and he's out and been replaced. Uh, coup. Uh, now, suppose you were king, and you found out there was a plot to uh, un dethrone you. And, you know, normally when you dethrone kings, you kill them, because their problem is to stay alive. Uh, that was the pattern in this ancient day, and still the pattern in lots of plays. If Gorbachev survives, it's uh, different from what it would have been 15 years ago in Russia, or 20 years ago, as you well know. But now, his life is at stake. And somebody is rising up against him. So he's got a rebellion on his hands. And he doesn't know who the rebels are. Is it the guy who brings his food to him? Is he part of the plot? Is it safe to eat the food that brings, that, that he brought, to drink the cup of refreshment that's brought to him? He's in the middle of a situation where, whom does he trust? I suppose there is no head in the world that lies as uneasily as a king's head if he's got this kind of situation. So he says, what do I do? I turn to the only person I know that I can trust totally. I turn to the only one that is really the one who absolutely can take care of the situation. So he turns to God. Now, with that as the background, look at, begin with the second segment of the psalm. Verse 8, he says, there is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and bow down before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart or unite my heart to revere your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. 
I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. You've saved me from death. You've saved me from the grave. Now, it's interesting that the first seven verses give us something of his problem and what he does. When he has a problem, he prays. And it's interesting, most of us, when we pray, we've had a problem. <laughs> That's what drives most of us to, to prayer, isn't it? We've got problems. Now, if we were the people we ought to be, we'd pray whether we had problems or not. But one of the beautiful things about God and about human life is he doesn't leave you long without problems. He sees to it that we have problems. And he works at that, I think, so that we have problems because that's what keeps us uh, what we ought to be. But uh, he's got a problem, and so he prays. And his problem is as intense as a human problem can be. It is uh, his own existence that is at stake. And now he turns to God. Now, the thing I want you to notice is a remarkable psychological change takes place with verse 8. He's enamored with the ruffians and the uh, insolent, arrogant ones who want to destroy him. And he comes into the presence of God. And the astounding thing is, the first thing you know, he's forgotten the guys that are after his eyes. Isn't that an interesting thing? If you get in the presence of God long enough, your problems begin to go this way. And his greatness begins to go this way. And this psalm is one of those classical pictures of how a man with as intense a problem as you can get as he waits before God and as he faces God, in the light of God, the problems get rather insignificant. And as he faces God, the glory of God gets greater. As I read this, you know, I thought about uh, Joseph's son telling me that uh, when the uh, uh, secret police were uh, interrogating him and trying to intimidate and destroy him, how God began to give him victory. And the way he did it was a confrontation with God. And out of that confrontation with God, he went back and he was... Uh, in a sense, more afraid, not in craving, craven fear, but his respect for God was more than it was for uh, the people who were trying to kill him. And so one day, the chief interrogator looked at him and said, Joseph, you're stupid, you'll never learn. I guess the only thing we can do is just kill you. And he said, I found myself looking back and smiling and saying, I understand. <laughs> uh, and before he got through, it was the interrogator that was in trouble, not Joseph's son. Because he said, that's your ultimate weapon. And when everything else has failed, you can kill me. You play your ultimate weapon, but i got an ultimate weapon. And he said, oh, yes, he said, and when you use yours, I get to use mine. Well, he said, what's your ultimate weapon? He said, yours is to kill and mine's to die. And when I die, I'm better off than I was before you killed me. <laughs> and he said, every tape that I've preached that circulated in Romania... After you kill me, it's got my blood sprinkled over it, and you'll have a lot more of a mess of a time with me dead than you got with me alive. <laughs> now, how do you get to that place? Joseph Son told me it came out of an experience on his face, on his floor, sobbing his heart out, saying, God, they're destroying me. I cannot take any more. And he said, God, he said, I think I heard a voice. Never happened to me but three times, but I think I heard a voice. And the voice said, Joseph, get up. 
I'll never forget the tone of voice. Who owns the secret police compared to the one who sits on the throne of the universe? Now David is, he's got a, may have a palace coup on his hand. But now, he's not in the presence of his enemies. He is in the presence of the Lord God, the sovereign God of the universe. And he says, there's nobody like you, Lord. Now, there are a lot of gods out there, but there are none like you. Nor are there any whose works are like yours. And I suppose David could remember a few works. You remember Goliath? You remember Saul wanted to kill him? You know, I'll never forget that scene where David is in the cave hiding. And Saul picks that cave to use for bathroom purposes. And here's David with his men, with their swords, and here's the guy who's out to kill him, and the Lord's delivered him into his hands. Now you remember the way David got out of that. It's interesting when we see God, other problems, get into right relationships, and he sees the greatness of God. All the nations you've made, you made them all, they're going to come and bow down before you, and they're going to glorify your name, That is part of the universalism of the Old Testament. Every nation was to be involved in the worship of Yahweh. For your great and do wondrous things, you alone are God. These other guys are men. They're like me. There's only one God, and I'm in your hands, and you'll be the one that determines what happens to me. That's good for a Methodist preacher, Ben, because uh, God is even bigger than the bishop. And... uh, you go to annual conference and think you're in the hands of the cabinet and the bishop, and uh, but uh, he's saying, you only, you're the only God there is. Now, when he has seen God, it's interesting his confidence level goes up. But then something else takes place that is beautiful to me. Immediately, as he sees the greatness of God, he begins to see his inadequacy. Do you know nobody ever sees himself until he until he faces God? I can deceive myself when I look at you. I can always find somebody in the crowd who enables me to look halfway decent. You know, I don't have to be realistic about things when I'm with most of you. I can find somebody in the crowd that makes me look halfway decent. It's only when we see God that we see ourselves for what we are. Isn't it interesting that He's the perfect mirror that reflects back to us where we see who we are. Now, when he sees God in his glory, what does he want? He wants two things. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth and unite my heart to revere your name. I want to thank you, Lord, my God, with my whole heart. Now, notice there are two things there I think very significant. He's seen God and he said, Lord, I want to know all about you now. What I see is so helpful, I want to know all about you. The reality is, if you will look at that line, teach me your way, it occurs in another very strategic spot in the Old Testament. It's in chapter 33 of Exodus. And it is... uh, Moses, who has led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, they've come through Sinai, they've got the law, they've already broken the law, and God's been ready to destroy the whole bunch apart from Moses' intercession. And uh, God has delivered them, 
And now God's saying, pack your bags and move on. We're going to the land of promise. And uh, as uh, he does, Moses says, I want to know whom you're going to send with me. I got all these people here, and they're a mess. Now, whom are you going to send with me? I have gained some favor in your eyes. It's interesting that Moses says, you've graced me with grace. I've gained favor in your eyes. Now, I want to know who's going to go with me. Because he said, I need help. And he says, I'm going to go with you. And he says, Lord, teach me your way that I may know you. Now, uh, that line I want to hold, hold for a moment. Teach me your way. Same prayers to Psalmist. Teach me your way that I may know you. Now think for a minute. Here's a guy who watched the bush burn without the leaves turning brown. And I heard a voice come out of it when there was nobody there. And uh, that voice was the beginning of his call that led him to deliver Israel. The voice said, throw your staff down, and his staff became a reversible snake. Which meant, I suspect, all the time he ever carried it the rest of his life, he had one eye cocked on it. He had watched the most powerful political figure in the world, broken and totally humble. He had watched that succession of plagues, he had stood in front of the sea and watched the sea parted for his convenience and his people's convenience. He had drunk water that came out of a rock because he spoke to it. Been fed by the manna, you know, and the quail. He had stood in the top, on the top of a mountain that was a flaming furnace of fire without getting, without perspiring. And it had the tables of the law, the basis of all of Western culture, morally, ethically, given to him from the direct hand of God. He'd watched all of this, and he said, Lord, I want to see something more than your sign. I'd like to know you. I'd like to know more than what you can do I'd like to know you. Now that uh, sort of gets to me because most of us enjoy the fireworks and that's what we look for. Moses said, I've seen that. But my heart hungers. I'd like to know you. Now it's interesting, the psalmist says, and this is, if this is David, he's got a pretty good line of signs in his background, hasn't he? Signs in one. Now he says, teach me your way, O Lord, so that I can walk in your truth, because if I don't know you, I won't know what your truth is that you want me to walk in. If I don't know who you are, I won't know whom you want me to be. The only way I can know whom you want me to be is to know you, because you want me to be like you. Now he says, the one thing I know is I'm not like you because I've got a split heart. I've got a bifurcation right in the middle of my being. And he says, unite my heart. This translation says, give me an undivided heart. Reunite, unite my heart to revere your name. 
because I want to give thanks to you, Lord, with my whole heart, not with part of my heart. Now, uh, I suspect that's one of the more significant prayers found anywhere in the Word of God, because that's what anybody who gets really to know God is going to hunger for. It's interesting, he'd like the rebels out of his, out of his court. That's what starts him. But when he gets in the presence of God, what he wants is the rebel out of his heart. Now that to me is uh, the story of the pilgrimage God wants every person to make. So he now is at the point where he says, I'd like you to unite my heart. You know, uh, I suspect that that is the deepest aspiration of the human spirit. All of us have got aspirations of different kinds and varieties. But I suspect the deepest and the profoundest aspiration of the human heart is expressed in this. That I'd like my heart to be as united in my commitment to you as yours is in your commitment to me, O Lord. I want to get to the place where with my whole heart, everything within me I can praise you. And there's no minority report hindering that. You know, uh, uh, I, next to the book of Psalms, in this kind of literature, I'm sure the hymn book is the thing that uh, speaks to us the most. And if you haven't gotten to the place where you on occasion take it, an old hymn book and just work your way through the hymn book, you've missed something. Because you see, those hymns are prayers of human hearts too. And one of the things I notice is it doesn't matter what tradition theologically a person comes from. If you get people far enough along in, uh, in their walk with God, they have the same cry. Uh, Scottish uh, preacher George Matheson who wrote, Oh love that wilt not let me go. See, that's the faithfulness of God and the commitment of God to George Matheson. But he also wrote, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I, then I shall be free. Force me to render up my independence, my sword, and I shall conquer thee. I think in life's alarms, and by myself I stand. Imprison me. I got a rebel in me. Capture him. <laughs> Imprison me within your arms, and strong shall be my hand. Now, uh, that's uh, Scottish Calvin. But that's the cry of his heart. He's seen the faithfulness of God, and he wants a corresponding faithfulness in me. Now, uh, you go through and you'll find it's, it's, it's amazing the cry in these, in, in these hearts, in our hearts. As I say, I think it's the deepest, profoundest aspiration of uh, the human, human psyche. Uh, take uh, George Crowley's uh, Spirit of God descend upon my heart. Wean it from earth. You sense what he's saying? Wean it from earth. Through all its pulses move. You're moving through some of the pulses of my heart, Lord. But what my heart yearns for is through all its pulses move. 
You remember, teach me to love thee in that hymn. Teach me to love thee as thine angels love. One holy passion filling all my frame. Excluding everything that's counterfeit. Filling all my frame. The baptism of the heaven-descended dove. You see, he relates it to Pentecost. The baptism of the heaven-descended dove. My heart and altar and thy love the flame that perpetually is consuming my heart. To where my heart is perpetually consumed by one thing, and that's the love of Christ, the love of God. Now, uh, you know, uh, if it weren't in Scripture, we'd put it there. <laughs> but it's in Scripture because that's where we want to go. That's what our hearts yearn for. And so he says, Unite my heart to revere, reverence your name. Now I want to, I want to, I want to say something now that to me is beautiful here. You know, we talked earlier about the consonance between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the agreement that, uh, it may be like the seed to the acorn, but there's no contradiction between the two. Do you notice? He doesn't, he's in deep trouble. He's more mature than I oftentimes am. Because you see, when I get in deep trouble, I want to bargain with God. And I say, God, if you do this to me, then I'll. You move and I'll move. There's not an ounce of that in this psalm. <laughs> there is not an ounce of that in this psalm. He doesn't say, if you move, I'll move. He says, I want you to move twice. I'd like you to save me, but really now, that's not my great concern. I want to know, not if you can take care of the rebels in my court, if you can take care of the one in my heart. And he sees there is nothing saving in him. So what you have is an imperative verb in which he doesn't command God, but he petitions God. He says, Unite my heart. Do you know something? If my heart's ever united to serve God, it won't be Dennis Kenlaw that puts it together. Do you know there is no human being who ever got good enough to say, I'll give my whole heart to God? There's too much of the rebel in every one of us. And if that rebellion is ever mastered, Somebody bigger than you and me is going to have to do it. And the psalmist had come to the place where he had seen the basic New Testament concept of salvation by grace through faith alone. If there's anything saving anywhere, it comes from that direction. It doesn't come from this direction. So he says, now Lord, can you put my heart together to where I can praise you with all of my heart? Because if it is put together, you'll have to be the one that does it. Then he said, I will glorify your name forever, for great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered and you will deliver my soul from the depths of Sheol, or from the grave. Now, uh, look at uh, that 13th verse. My translation says, for great is your steadfast love toward me. Loving kindness, mercy, 
really one of the better translations of that is, for great is your covenant love. He's talking about a covenant, a commitment. He said, I'm concerned about my commitment to you, but I want to thank you for your commitment. <laughs> there may be a question about mine sometimes, but I want to thank you. There's no question about yours to me. Now, I want to tell you something that is one of the most awesome things in the Scripture to me. I dare you to find the time sometimes to dig them out. Those passages where God is upset enough with Israel and the prophets know how upset he is because of their sin, their idolatry, their wickedness, their evil, all the rest of it, their contemptibleness, that God says, I'm going to walk off and leave you. And in almost every one of those passages, take uh, Ezekiel 16, he says, uh, your father was a Hittite and your mother was an Amorite, and I found you, you were an illegitimate child, I found you lying in the wilderness, unwashed, uh, nobody cared for you, a baby thrown away, ditched, a child, infant. And I came along and took you and washed you, and I always interested saltism. Uh, but that's what the text says. And it says, I saw, it, you know, found a babe out there lying unsalted. That meant forsaken, totally forsaken. And Yahweh came along. God came along and took the baby and then developed the baby, fed the baby, nurtured it, let it grow until that baby became a beautiful young lady. And when she became a beautiful young lady, he said, I will choose her for my wife. And then he marries himself to the girl he saves. And then after he marries himself to the girl he saves, she is unfaithful to him. And the unfaithfulness continues until she gets to the place where she's paying her lovers instead of paying them. She's are getting pay from them. She's paying them for their for her infidelity. And uh, then, you know, he's ready to wash his hands. Then you get to the last few lines and you get a reversal in which he says, I'm going to reach out and do what I can do to bring you back. There's something that won't quit about the love of God. And he says, Great is your covenant love. Now you got the problem that uh, if there's sin, it won't stand ultimately in his presence. And he knows that. And he knows the rebellion got to be dealt with. But his hope is in that steadfast covenant love of Yahweh because you've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. If you look at Jeremiah, you'll find a very, you'll find this kind of thing illustrated. And in Ezekiel, uh, you remember the context of Jeremiah and Ezekiel? Jeremiah was in Jerusalem while Israel just went deeper and deeper into it. Judaism just went deeper and deeper into its idolatry and its sinfulness. To the extent that uh, Jeremiah said, uh, God's going to take you away and destroy you. You're going to be carried into Babylonian captivity and there won't be a one, won't be a one of you left here. 
and he, he predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the kingdom, and it came. But in the very passage where he is ready to, where he is telling them that Judah as a people is going to be destroyed, uh, he goes out and, uh, you know what he does? He buys a piece of property in everybody's plain view. Because he says sooner or later, God's going to bring the descendants of this crew back. Because you may be under his judgment, but his people, he's not going to quit on them. And he's going to bring them back. And when he buys this piece of property, they say, what do you want a piece of property here for? You just sold us the Babylonians. We're going to capture it all. He said, that's right. For 70 years. And after 70 years, there's that return. That incredible faithfulness of God. Now you get the same thing in Ezekiel, except Ezekiel is in Babylon. And you sort of get these twin voices. The one from Jerusalem. And Ezekiel was carried a priest into Babylon. His, as a young man. Never served in the temple. His whole life was to be spent in the temple. And he never spent a day in the temple. And all his life. He was thinking about what he was made for. And what he would never be. And so he says. All of this is because of your sin. Because God will not leave sin unjust. God will deal with every sin and it will be it will it will be accounted for. But he said uh, this has all happened because of your sin. But it's interesting when you get to the end of those passages Ezekiel says but he's going to take the people as a remnant that's going back. There's a remnant that's going back. And then he sees the land and the temple rebuilt. Now, in each one of those passages, in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, uh, you get references to whole heart, united heart, new heart. You get references to the vision that, that David has in this psalm of a heart with a rebe rebellion taken out. If we had time, we could look at them and see them. I'd never noticed this before. But in every one of these passages, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there's that promise of a new heart, a single heart, a united heart, an undivided heart. There's an Old Testament scholar who says that the Old Testament cries out for something more. And that's the line I want to leave you on. The Old Testament cries out for something more. Now that more is of two natures, I think. One of them is that more is the difference between David and Christ. You get the king in the Old Testament and you get a great king, David. But there's a say, he's not good enough. And David is the first one to bear witness to that. And he says, we need a greater and a greater than David is coming. And we have him. We have him in Christ. The other thing is the empirical part. That there is a fullness that is found through the fullness of the Spirit that is not common in the Old Testament. And there's that cry for it. And here's David saying, that's what I yearn for. A heart that is holy, yours, filled with your Spirit to the extent that all my heart does is praise you. 
Now that's the cry of the Old Testament. And that's what we find, I think, in the New Testament teaching on being filled with the Spirit. Isn't it interesting? Somewhere inside you, there's a witness that says, that's the thing I want more than anything. And if it comes, it won't be your doing and mine. It'll be his. And that's what he brought his Holy Spirit at Pentecost to do to fill it. So that our hearts could be united to do his will and to praise him in all things. Interesting psalm, isn't it? Wish I had the rest of my life. I wish I had another life to do nothing but study the psalm.